Welcome back to Hot Off The Pod. I'm your co-host, Melanie Smet, and today we're going to be welcoming our producer, Emily Kosis, to help me host the podcast. Hey, I usually get to edit these, so it is super fun this time to be on. I'm very excited. We're going to be talking about the intersection of the recent Black Lives Matter protests and the impacts of the pandemic as a whole have brought focus to the many inequities that exist in the systems across our country. The justice system is no exception. Right now, I'm in Professor Chavez Garcia's fantastic History of Juvenile Justice course, which focuses on youth of color, particularly on racial and ethnic minorities, caught in the web of what has become known as the juvenile justice system. Professor Chavez Garcia is our guest today, and she is a professor of history at UCSB with affiliations in the departments of Chicano Chicana Studies and Feminist Studies. She currently serves as the faculty director of the McNair Scholars Program at UCSB, and her latest book, Migrant Longings, Letter Writing Across the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, was selected as the 2019 Choice Outstanding Academic Title and won the 2019 Western Association of Women's Historians Barbara Penny Canner Award. So lots of big things. Welcome, Professor Chavez-Garcia, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, busy Sunday to join us today. We're super excited to have you. Thank you very much, Emily and Melanie, for inviting me on. I look forward to chatting with you today. We're really excited. Just to start off, I know Emily knows some about this topic already because she's in your class, but for me and others who are listening who don't know so much about the history of the juvenile justice system, can you give us kind of an intro into how it works across the country and in California? Sure, would be happy to. It's important to realize that the modern juvenile justice system, as we know it today, didn't really come into existence until the 20th century, until really the early 1900s. Before that, even though in my class, sometimes I talk about the juvenile justice system in the colonial period, it didn't really exist that way, right? So I think that all the structures that are familiar to us today in terms of juvenile justice, just like with criminal justice, like the courts, probation, maybe foster care, juvenile hall, the different institutions in which young people are detained came into being in the 20th century, but certainly the roots go back to the 19th and even to the colonial period. So we spend that time in class. That was one of the framing questions for me when I developed the class was like, how have troublesome or wayward youth been dealt with in the United States across time? So back, back, back as far as, you know, <laughs> and then even then looking at the colonial period, you know, 1600s and 1700s, and it's what about people of African descent or African-Americans? How do they deal with their children, Native Americans, and then different parts of the regions of the United States? It can be very diffuse. In general, I would say the juvenile justice system is diffuse. It's hard to say like what it is, what kind of coherent system it is, because it's run on a state basis. So every state has a slightly different looking system. The federal government has some oversight, but it's really state by state. That's the big picture, sort of juvenile justice, the modern day is really something of the 20th century. So in California, what shape does that take? In California, it's changed quite a bit and it keeps changing every time there's some sort of, how we say there's a scandal or there's some sort of revelation of improprieties. It's like a cycle because it's something that I studied in my book, States of Delinquency. I look at the early juvenile justice system in California and the in the early 20th century, the idea with, through progressive reform, the idea was to bring about more attention to the needs of the child. Whereas before that, it was really about, there was some attention, but really it was about what did they do, right? The attention around what kind of act did they do? And so more in the 20th century became the early 20th century. So, well, how can we best meet the needs of this child? And that was early 20th. 
And then over time, there was reform movements in the mid 20th century, where there was a shift to giving children more rights like adults, because the juvenile court, when it was first established in 1899, Chicago was the first one, or Illinois, and then it, California had its first juvenile court in 1903. It was, it was set up like a civil court. So children didn't really have, you don't have a count, you don't have a, you know, a lawyer, you didn't know how long you were going to be inside because the judge would decide. So it run like a civil court. By the time the 1940s, 1950s, people realized, who are the kids who are coming through? Primarily poor, ethnic, immigrant, Black, you know, kids of color who were getting a, a very raw deal because the court was usually sending them places that were not very nice. So by the 1960s, we have what's called the due process revolution, essentially saying children should be given 14th Amendment right through due process. They should have the ability not to incriminate themselves. They should have the ability to have a lawyer or to confront the people who are accusing them because in the juvenile court, they were essentially guilty, right? They were walking in there and the judge was just basically trying to get them to fess up. They're like, oh, okay, Johnny, you know, no, what really happened? And Johnny would give a story <laughs> and he goes, no, Johnny, we all know why you're here. You know, so they would do this kind of thing. Whereas by the 1960s, we have more an adversarial system. So now youth are given rights of adults. The other side of that coin becomes, and then they're treated as adults. But there's more oversight. So it's kind of, it's a complicated system. But once they started getting all those rights, not everybody's happy with that. There's a considerable backlash against this due process revolution of the 1960s and 70s, which paralleled the civil rights movement, which paralleled other kinds of moves to give individuals more liberties. And so there was a real backlash coming from the South, from the Southern Democrats, saying this is leading to all this crime. Look at these young people are going wild. Look at them in the college campuses. Look at all the urban riots happening. You know, we have the Watts riots of 1965, the Detroit riots as well. There was other riots happening in the 60s, which really about something else. But of course, the Southern Democrats were saying these new laws that are there, these new rights, and also, the, of course, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that all scared the South very much. Then in the 80s, they see an uptick in crimes because they're looking for crimes and new laws are passed. By the 90s, we have what they call the crime wave hysteria, where there's this need to sort of go back to these old ideas about we need to punish the deed and punish the actual child. So then we go back to this old system. In the 1990s, we have the idea of the super predator as well, like this belief in the popular press about these young, wild, you know, creating, wreaking havoc in, the, in our communities, urban places. And of course, one thing that we read in class, Emily probably remembers, is the, the Central Park Five. It was also recently a Netflix documentary, the idea of what had happened with those five young boys who had been essentially coerced. By the time they were done with them, in terms of like trying to force them to confess, they actually believed they had done it. And that wasn't the only case. Many times that had happened to young kids who were being treated as adults. It's a different thing to sit in an investigation room with a 44-year-old man versus a 14-year-old, 15-year-old child and trying to say, oh, yes, you did it. Don't you remember? The Central Park Five is one example of those kinds of things that happened as a backlash against these rights and freedoms. Today, I think we're still kind of in that mode. Even dress, right? The hoodie, how the hoodie became so symbolic of the criminalization of, particularly of a young Black men, young Black boys, I should say, in terms of style and dress. It goes beyond that, right? Language, music, don't play your music too loud. How are you speaking, right? What kind of language that we use. All of these things and spaces, of course, where you can hang out or not hang out, the gang injunctions. I think there has been an attempt very recently to deinstitutionalize 
deinstitutionalization means essentially extracting children from these institutions, right? Like taking them out of state facilities, which is something that happened decades ago in the 1960s and 70s. The federal government finally stepped in to do that. But at the county level, this has been more the case because of funding, just the fact that there's no money. So then they're like, mm-hmm. let's let them go. And not always with the resources that they need. There are programs, but it depends. Would you say that COVID-19 has had an impact on them deinstitutionalizing these kids? I think for sure that's had an impact. Honestly, I don't know to what extent, because all we hear in the press is about the adult system and need to release people because of the prevalence of COVID and how it's been terrible on the inside. People are getting released and there have been some of them, I don't know to what extent they've been doing this, of actually giving them housing for a temporary basis so they can then transition, right, to making sure that they don't have COVID. I love to listen to this one podcast called Ear Hustle, and it's fantastic. I love it. Ear Hustle is about San Quentin and looking at life inside the prison. But once the co-host was released, then it kind of focused on the outside. And of course, now because of COVID, there's a focus on the outside. Definitely, I think that more of them have been released. So it has to do a lot of factors. Of course, public mood around how people are you know, thinking about crime. And that's why these horrible laws can be passed to move them out. And then also, of course, funding, you can move them out, but there's no funding, then are you setting them up to go right back in? Just to backtrack a little, you mentioned that we read about the Central Park Five in class, and it's something I definitely remember because it talked a lot about the newspaper's function in juvenile justice, which is so interesting because as a podcast that operates out of the newspaper, I think focusing on coverage and the way public opinion is swayed by the way this institution works is super important to keep in mind for reporters and newspapers. I think one thing that kind of gets overlooked in considering these kids who find themselves institutionalized during adolescence, during one of these really big growth periods in their lives is the educational options that are available to them. And so I guess a question to you is, is there a large emphasis in education in the juvenile justice system? And if so, like historically, what form has that taken? What options are kind of available for kids who find themselves in this system? Historically, we know that in the 19th century, when there was establishment of institutions and those being specifically um, either the houses of refuge or the reformatories, which they're very similar to houses of refuge. The only difference I would say from a reformatory is that there's more structure, more focus around educations. These were institutions that were set up in the 19th century because families and communities could no longer take care of all the children because of the growth of the population, especially because of the growth of immigration, industrialization, and urbanization. The need for these institutions come up. And in these institutions, education becomes a component. The way it worked out in practice, it really got short shrift, I mean, to some extent even under the progressives who were sort of much more interested in developing the child and so forth, it still was very limited in terms of hours in the day. And it's certainly in the 19th century was even less. It was primarily around, if I can recall, a moral instruction, a lot of them, depending if they were religious based, a lot of them were. And so the idea was to inculcate sort of Protestant values. And so there was a lot of mild Americanization, but we see the Americanization efforts happening more towards the end of the 19th century where there was more explicit use of education to groom them and teach them to be particular kind of citizens, right, this idea of being a citizen, but also along lines of gender, right, conformity. Girls were taught one thing, boys were taught another. 
And I do believe that boys got more instruction, more education. Sometimes they're the only ones who did receive any kind of formal education and girls did not. Because there's more attention to adults, the library is such an important space. Well, this is what I heard in the ear hustle. They talk about the libraries and people coming out having multiple master's degrees or multiple AA degrees. And so to me, that is so vital and so crucial. Then there's attention to around young people and getting them educated. I think it's a challenge with young people because any teenager, you don't want to be in school, right? (laughs) Believe me, having two teenagers, I, I know, and they're very different. One enjoys it, one doesn't so much. But, you know, they need an outlet. Education comes in so many different forms. And I think one of the problems with the programs inside is that they're very inconsistent. The teachers are probably not that great. Sometimes I have volunteers who are terrific and they run these programs with people on the outside. You've heard a lot of these. They've done some wonderful programs. So it just kind of depends. Those sort of programs, are they geared towards developing these kids and making them ready for potentially seeking higher education after they exit the juvenile justice system? Or is that just not a focus at all? I think that's a focus. I think it just depends on the institution. In the McNair Scholars Program, there's at least two students who were formerly incarcerated, and they're now gearing up and preparing themselves to enter a PhD program. That's the goal of McNair is to get students to go to PhD programs. And so there is that. It's just to what extent that's available to people, say, in the Midwest, where there's very few resources, states like in Mississippi or other places. Even California, I mean, we're pretty low, unfortunately, right now in the educational system, how we measure up to other states. Are there ways that we can make universities more accessible to the youth exiting the juvenile justice system? Or is the onus kind of on the system to make changes and make the youth in the system ready to enter higher education? I think that the universities, we should step up in that regard. I think that's a great question. I think that the juvenile justice system just can't. I don't think we should expect them to. Maybe we might say, oh, ideally, but there's so much on their plate. I know that at UCSB, Susan Derwin, the director of the IHC, the Interdisciplinary Humanities Centers, she runs a writing program. She gets graduate students. They do a writing program with prisoners. They help them to write, to do writing projects and like literature classes like on the inside. There's always an issue around juveniles because of the status. They're underage. And so then that becomes very tricky. Nevertheless, I can't see why we don't think about that. I think it has to do with the fact of the age is an issue. But when they come out, I think something like the underground scholars where we connect with them. But that was something that was started by students. So it's not necessarily institutional. We've kind of touched on this already, but COVID-19 has kind of been wrecking havoc on what already seems to be kind of a not that solidly constructed system. There's been a variety of responses, especially in California. At first, there was kind of a refusal to release juvenile inmates, whereas adult inmates were kind of being let off early because there were surges. And despite surges in juvenile populations, there was this refusal to let them out early. Later on, there was this desperate emptying of juvenile halls in kind of a last-ditch attempt to address these COVID surges. Is there really a right way that these systems should be responding to these Is it better to have a support system for them to rely on? You know, how are these systems supposed to respond to public health crises? Should they have a plan in place? Where do you kind of think the blunder was in these mixed responses? These are really good questions. I think that, unfortunately, in society, we think of prisons and prisoners 
is last on anyone's mind. It goes back to the fundamental questions about who is worthy, who is worthy of support, not just privately, but by the state. The way we function in society is like who is worthy, who is put in their share. We definitely, I think, prisoners, no matter what age they are, are going to be sort of left behind. And I think some of these blunders that you suggest had to do with the fact that we just didn't know how COVID works. Now that we know, we could have said we should have let the young people out because they are less likely mm. to contract it, to spread it than adults are. It's not just about that adults perhaps don't pay heed the warnings as much as young people. They actually have been shown, there were studies shown that young children, because of the way they communicate, because they tend not to look at people's faces, the younger ones, because they look down, you know, the, the way that their breathing happens, it's just because they've done all these studies, even on schools, that comparing schools where there's been no protections versus those who there have been, it's not that different. I mean, kids don't spread it as much as, and they're a little bit more immune to their saying, right? Not always, nevertheless. So that was, I think, just not knowing how COVID works. When there's any kind of action done, I think, in terms of addressing criminal justice and juveniles, it's, the idea is like, what impact is it going to have on a larger society? And that's, of course, obviously important to everybody, but then that becomes more of a protecting the public health. They had to put that argument out there, like, you know, the government officials, okay, so for public health, we need to address the prisoners who are going to be released, not necessarily for their own good, but for everybody else's own good. Their needs are still not primary. So there's been a lot of mistakes, I mean, all the way around, but I think that hopefully now with some more education, people understand how things work then the quarantine period would be important. But then where are you going to send the children back? What's their safety net? I don't even call it safety net. Like, do they have a home to live? Right. A space to, to be? Those are hard, really, really hard. Relating to that, I don't know if you can speak on how funding has been impacted at all for this system. And, you know, which areas are typically the first to go when funding gets cut for juvenile justice systems? It's interesting how sometimes when we're talking about criminal justice and juvenile justice, we can have people on the right, I went to like conservative versus people on the left, more liberal, can kind of agree on similar things, but for different reasons, right? The idea of bringing more attention to the criminal justice and juvenile justice system. They want more attention, right? More money, but for different reasons. Now there might be, well, we need to keep them in there longer. Let's put more funding in there. That might be the conservative. Liberals might say, well, we need to take care of their needs. I mean, everybody's been hit hard. Every institution, there have been cutbacks. It's just a matter of where society deciding where those cutbacks are going to be. Usually, the idea has been not, in California at least historically, has been not to cut back on prison system, right? Well, since the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s when there was a massive, because of drugs, the criminalization of low-level drugs, right? we see the mass incarceration happening, not just in California, but particularly in California, the Central Valley, the building of all these new prisons. And that has had an impact for sure in terms of how people think like we need to keep them up. You know, any kind of thought about cutting anything related to the prisons is met with some serious outrage. Even, for instance, cutting back on the funding on the LAUSD, Los Angeles Unified School District Police, right? There was this idea they had to cut back 25%. This just happened this past week where that looked like they wanted to cut a quarter of it. That means I think they're taking a $25 million hit. And so that means one thing they're going to do is get rid of the police inside the high schools. One thing that's very, very strong is the union of the police officers, the guards. There's a lot of resistance, like cutting funding, actually, you would think that oh, it would be easy to do that. It's not always so easy. 
there's a lot of political interests. Sometimes they don't want them to touch the prison system because it creates a lot of jobs, it gets a lot of votes, it creates these bastions, it sustains these communities, has built these communities. Particularly in California, that's one place we need to look at. Everybody's employed or know somebody who works at the prison. I mean, they, yeah. people have done the studies where what does it take to put one person in jail? It costs more money than to educate somebody. Recently, the Daily Nexus covered an event put on by an Associated Students subcommittee of the Human Resources Board called Pages for Individuals in Prison, which sought to collect reading materials for people in prisons. Is a program like this actually useful to youth in the juvenile system? Does organizing donations and other philanthropic endeavors actually help, or is it just kind of treating a system of a vaster problem? I think it's a great thing to do. I know that they have these programs around and again, through Ear Hustle, they have their website and they get people to donate things. I can't remember to what extent they were doing book drives, but I do think that that's a great opportunity to help people have their connection to the outside world. I don't know if they censor any books in particular. Certainly, I'm sure they look through them pretty well. I would hope that they don't censor them. I've heard of lots of stories of people inside using them and reading them, sometimes reading them multiple times because they don't have access. The problem then becomes actually the physical, like, do we donate a book or is it better to give money and then have them ship the books? That's more technical, but I I do advocate for these kinds of programs, for sure. I know you touched on before the importance of libraries in these institutions. And so I think it's so interesting that with COVID causing a little bit of chaos and maybe a lack of funding, that these libraries, according to the subcommittee, are one of the first to go. I think that's really sad because it seems to be like a kind of hub of learning for inmates. Definitely, at least when I hear about them, they're like saying it's, it's been really bad because they're not, they're quarantined, they're in their cells all day and it's just, they can't do anything. And even in very progressive spaces, you know, prisons, we call them progressive, but like in San Quentin, when they have lots of programs for training and it's incredible to hear the things that they have for the inmates. I think as UCSB students, it's super important to note that there are actually multiple juvenile detention facilities, you know, whether that be reformatories, jails, or centers that are actually in Santa Barbara and a lot of the surrounding areas, which I don't think a majority of students are even aware of. Relating to that, why do you think it's so important to devote resources and devote time towards this research? And why do you think it's important for college kids to learn about? I think it's important to get this knowledge to understand and who's in our community, right? Who makes up our community? How diverse is our community? Sometimes I think, how useful is it for people to sort of do these, like, let's go into these neighborhoods and see how other people live. You know, this, we used to call it like the Disneyland thing, right? So people touring <laughs> the scary parts of town. How do we create that difference between having knowledge and, and not just knowledge, but where knowledge kind of spurs you into action? We all want to, not all of us, but those who do want to get involved, There's so many things you can get involved in. Many times it takes something personal, a personal connection to get involved. And as UCSB students, a lot of us have had privileges to be able to get there. Not everybody, of course. But even then, I'm not saying that people who are privileged don't have the capacity to lend a hand. And they do, and they get very involved, and they want to be leaders. And I think that's fantastic. So I think it's just being aware. I don't want to say just UCSB, but any college campus. I went to UCLA and then for undergrad Mm -hmm. and grad school, and then I spent 12 years at Davis you know, you have, you're going back and forth. So you're really in a bubble. I think it's different at the Cal State where a lot of people commute. It's commuter universities. A lot of them do live on campus, but it's highly urban. And then the city is sort of built into it. 
But here we have that, you know, we're a little bit more in a bubble, which allows for us at least develop ourselves, but certainly you can get involved in all these different kinds of activities on campus. But yeah, it's hard. Even I didn't know. I'm like, do we have a juvenile? Like where are the, you know, there's a boys camp because that's through my mm-hmm. own. They've been around for a long time. And that goes back to the 1940s, the camps or the 1930s. They started establishing these camps. So it's been around for a while. And I know that one of my students who came to give a talk in our class, Bella Restrepo, she looks at the connection between foster girl, foster youth girls, Latina girls and foster youth, and the connection to the carceral system. She's studied girls not too far from here. There's these camps, these ranches, like Ojai, and even towards Santa Inez. I mean, you don't know they're out there, but sort of put in these camps. I do think it's interesting to note that a lot of these communities we're talking about don't exist down in South County. They actually are kind of hidden up in the more rural parts of Santa Barbara County. And, you know, they are still a part of our community. They do still factor into what funding our accounting receives and the population and the amount of COVID cases and all those things. I do think there's a tendency to separate Santa Barbara and Montecito from the other areas of the county, but they are still part of the community and we still should have conversations about the things that are afflicting that population. Yeah. And then the simple fact that Santa Maria is part of Santa Barbara County. Well, I think this podcast is a great first step in getting involved and starting to learn about some of this history. It's been amazing. It's been super informative. Thank you so much. I really think it was great. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Emily. Thank you, Melanie. This is really fun. I really appreciate taking interest in this topic. Unless you're really in the know, not discussed too much. So hopefully more of your listeners will get involved somehow. There's lots of opportunities on campus. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. If anybody ever needs a great class to take, History 144J is amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for that plug. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> of course. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Here are some other hot headlines from the Daily Nexus. Eight Save the San Marcos Foothills protesters were arrested by Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office deputies last Thursday for blocking a bulldozer at the West Mesa of the San Marcos Foothills, aiming to prevent the construction of a housing development on land with historical ties to the Chumash Nation. Check out the Daily Nexus's news section for developing updates on upcoming protests and ongoing negotiations. In a campus-wide email, UCSB Chancellor Henry T. Yang announced that the majority of spring quarter 2021 classes will remain remote. He went on to say that the university is planning a limited reopening of the recreational center and library services during spring quarter. The Daily Nexus's winter print edition has officially hit the newsstands. Check out the Daily Nexus's social media for a map of all the Isla Vista and Goleta locations where you can pick up a copy today. Special thanks to our guests, Professor Chavez Garcia, and the rest of the Hot Off the Pod team, Harper Lambert, Josh and Manti, and Tony Schindler-Ruberg. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out our social media for more Hot Off the Pod content. We'll be taking a well-deserved break for finals, but we'll be back with more amazing episodes after spring break. Have a happy spring break and see you next time.